Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. We put together a uh, letter in a... uh, Developed, I think, a little brochure even, just on paper, double fold or something like that, for professionals who were dealing with addicts. There were therapists uh, in the phone book around the city. And uh, I got together with one or two other guys in the SA meeting group. <clears throat> and... Uh, we sent out letters to the therapists in town. And it was all about SA, uh, but it had nothing to do with prisons. It was just through our local group that we did that shortly after it got started. And we saw it as a kind of a recruiting device. If we could get to those therapists, they might tell some of their clients about us. And most of them were pretty receptive. They um, they didn't see us as competition. They saw us as supplemental. They didn't know much about what we were doing or what addiction was about. But they knew these guys had sex problems, and, and uh, that sounded like it might be related, you know, so... Anyway, uh, we we didn't do a very good job of follow-up. But we did get some phone calls from, because my phone, home phone number was on it. <laughs> we did get some follow-up phone calls from some of the therapists. And they made some referrals to our... Uh, uh, meeting to our fellowship. And some of those guys uh, did well in the program. They were they were interested. I would guess that we never had more than five at the total. Maybe maybe as many as ten showed up from that source. And uh and it happened for a long time. I mean, it was years later that somebody would show up or call me on the phone because I'm listed for SA and in the uh, online. As a matter of fact, I'm the contact for Tucson, and I I almost always uh, when it's a newcomer, 
asking for information about meetings and so on, I do a little orientation over the phone because I don't want them to just stumble into something without knowing what they're doing and I don't want them to screw up our meeting. And uh, Sometimes it's somebody who's a graduate student at the university and wants information about addiction and wants to come to a meeting and see how it goes. And they never get in. But, but I almost always, I think almost without fail, unless I had some real problem doing it, uh, I've always volunteered to meet with them individually and explain the program to them and describe my own experience in sobriety and recovery and tell them everything I know about the program. And uh, everything was going well. And one night at a meeting, we had a, a newcomer come in. And it uh, didn't take us long to find out that he was a convicted felon, sex offender. And he was out on bail. Doesn't happen anymore. But in those days, he was out on bail awaiting sentencing. And he was going to be coming to meetings. Then we found out, and so we welcomed him with open arms, you know. One more guy who can help us stay sober. <laughs> and so then uh, we uh, we talked to him, and uh, we, we found out uh, that very first meeting that he was there for the wrong reasons. He was trying to impress a judge so that he would get a lighter sentence. And we said, well, that's okay with us, but that's not why we're here, <laughs> you know? And so gradually, he found out why he was there. And he wanted to keep coming to meetings as long as he could. And then it was another two, three months, I guess, when another new guy dropped in, and it was very similar. He was also out on bail awaiting sentencing. And I had the opportunity to sponsor both of those guys. Well, one of them got a uh, short sentence, uh, short for sex offenders. It's three years is what he got. And uh, the other one got uh, a sentence of 51 years. And he was 54 years old at the time. I got on uh, their visitation list, so I could only be on one list at a time, so I was on one for for a year or so, and then I, I moved over to the other one uh, after some consultation back and forth. And uh, then uh, they started finding friends in the prison uh, who were interested in the program. And wanted to, they saw what these guys were going through and what they were doing, and they read some of the literature, and and they wanted to know if I would be willing to sponsor them in prison. Well, I couldn't be on their visiting lists either, you know. I could only be on one visiting list at a time. So I said, well, I, I could write to them. And so that's how Sponsored by Mail got started. <laughs> And uh, and then they had friends and other friends, and and I never said no. <laughs> and so I got to the point where I realized, 
geez, I had a dozen prisoners I was writing to and sponsoring on a regular basis. You know, that I would, I would, I started out by sending them some literature about the program and a guide for the first step. And I'd just write out some directions for the first step. And then if they, if they did the first step and sent it back to me, I would uh, critique that and send it back to them and, uh, and include a guide for the second step. You know, here's what you have to do if you want to work the second step. Well, by the time I got to 12 guys, you know, I was just given separate instructions to everybody for every step, and I was going crazy. So I decided I would I would uh, prepare some steps, and I would copy those and uh, send them those steps one at a time, but... But I wouldn't have to rewrite the step itself. I could put add some other comments in a letter if I wanted to, but but I could help them that way. So I did. It's not that I thought I knew more about how to work the steps than anybody else. But I thought I knew a lot more about what they were able to do. And I didn't want the working of the steps to be an obstacle to their recovery. You know, what craziness is that? So if you look, I don't know if you've looked at the set of step guides, but they're very simplified. There are a limited number of questions. They're the ones that I felt were most essential and I tried to do it in such a way that there was not a lot for them to read and there was not a lot for them to write that they could, when, when I got at my best, I thought I was telling them all I had to do was fill in the blanks. Now, I did that because what I found was that some of the uh, prisoners who were writing to me uh we're not writing very well. Some of them could barely read and write. Not true of all of them. Some of them were, you know, graduates. <laughs> but um, in order that I had one set of guides that everybody could use, I put I used that that set. And that I didn't put that together until I had a lot of experience on the, in the sponsor by mail program, and I would keep writing out instructions for each one separately, and I would uh, uh, modify that as I went, you know. So it was they were getting better. My letters to them about how to work step whatever was uh, getting better and better. I thought. And so finally, it was not only a good time to capture that in writing, but it was uh, it was a good way to release myself from some of the burden of just the writing mechanism. Never hesitated to write letters about answering their questions or or critiquing their steps. Uh, I would go out of my way to to write quite a bit to some of them. Uh, but I didn't want to do that with step guides. If 
forever. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was to to adapt the program to their needs. And that's where I say be flexible, be creative, do what works. Don't try to put the square peg in the round hole. You got a different clientele there on, in the prison. And uh, recognize those differences and allow for them. And sometimes you can capitalize on them. In the AA Big Book, where, where it shows you, it tells you about the steps. It says the following steps are suggested as a program of recovery. Well, that means, you know, there must be other suggestions out there somewhere. But these were their best suggestions at that stage in the early stages of development of the 12-step program. Mm -hmm. So I always uh, feel freer to uh, adapt things. Uh, when I when I go back and read the AA stuff carefully, mm-hmm. and uh, even with the promises, you know, and things like that, the, the way the the lead-in stuff is written is very important to me because they're saying this may not be the best way to do all of this, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think. As a result, I feel a responsibility to continue to experiment with the with the program. Doesn't mean I'm throwing anything away. Well, then the uh, Seiko office in uh, in Tennessee found out that I was doing that, and I got a call one day from Kay, the secretary in the office. And uh, she asked if, uh, uh, she first asked me some questions just for clarification to find out what I was doing. And uh, I answered them all, told her I was getting along fine. I was enjoying what I was doing, and it was a big help to me. And uh, (laughs) so then she said, uh, well, uh, I get letters from time to time from prisoners all over the country. And uh, they want to know about the the program and what we can do to help. And she said, I can't help them very much. But she said, (laughs) would you be willing to sponsor them by mail (laughs) if I I, uh, let you know who those people are? And I said, sure. So she she never asked for permission to send my address to them. But she always, if she got a letter from a prisoner, she'd make a copy of it and send me a copy of their letter, which had their address on it. So I could write to them. I could initiate the contact. And uh, and she, uh, the office there, would supply, supply a white book and uh, maybe one or two other things, pamphlets mostly, I think. But the main thing was the white book. So I didn't have to supply white books to them. And uh, uh, then um, the thing just grew. That's how I got overloaded at one point. I was up to a dozen or so uh, sponsors at a, uh, sponsees at a particular time by mail. 
And and that didn't feel like so much of a burden as it may sound like at first, because uh, the schedule was not tight at all. I could do it anytime I wanted to. I could do it when I was sitting in my office at work, or I could do it when I was at home. I could do it if I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and couldn't sleep. Um, and I could write half a letter now and half a letter tomorrow. And uh, I did a lot of that. Uh, but I always followed up. I had a rule that whenever I got a letter from a prisoner, I would respond within three days. That gave me enough elbow room so that if I really had a tight schedule on certain days, I could uh, put it off for that long. But otherwise, I'd do it right away. Why wait? You know, sometimes there'd be a question or an issue raised in a letter that I'd want to think about for a day. And that gave me enough time to do that, too, so that I wasn't just always shooting from the hip. What I learned... (laughs) through sponsoring these guys. And if any of you have been sponsors, you know that you get to know that sponsee inside and out. You get to know what his doubts are, what his worries are, what his concerns are, what he's thinking about in the way of of, uh, a relapse, (laughs) what he's thinking about, you know, in all kinds of ways. And that was the only kind of sponsorship I knew. (laughs) So that's what I passed on to the prisoners. I knew everything there was to know about those prisoners. The only thing I did, I encouraged them to refrain from any details about their, especially the uh, crime for which they were uh, convicted because I knew that a lot of them were still in the appeal process for things like that. So, you know, just don't tell anybody what you did in in any detail. You can tell them what you were convicted of. That's public information. But don't tell them what you did or didn't do, because you may want that information to be uh, sacred when you go back to court. I always said, don't put anything in a letter <laughs> that you don't want the prison officials to know because you know that they're always subject to to opening your mail. And I will be careful about what I put in letters to you. I got a uh, birthday card from a prisoner. Uh And he happened to be one of the guys who I met here before he went into prison. But he sent me a birthday card. And he said something about my family. And, uh, of course, it had my home address on it. And, and, uh, but he didn't, he didn't refer to how he got to know me that well. Well, they opened that card, you know, and I got a call from a prison official saying, uh, have you been giving out your home address to prisoners? (laughs) Have you been telling them when your birthday is? 
And then suddenly it dawned on me, you know, and I had a wide open discussion with this prison authority. I said, I knew him before he went to prison. Yeah, he knows quite a bit about me. He's a good friend. <laughs> and then they they got off of that. But if I was just uh, passing out that information indiscriminately to prisoners in a unit, I would be called in for it, and they would tell me cut cut that out. So uh, they were careful, even in the steps that they wrote out and sent to me. They were. I encourage them to be very careful. Don't put anything in a letter in any form that you don't want the prison officials to know. And I never had one problem with a prisoner divulging something that he wished he hadn't later on. Some of them, I think from time to time, did some bluffing in the letters. Hard to do that face to face. Uh, if I thought they were bluffing, bluffing, I'd call them on it. In the next letter, I'd say, I'm not so sure I believe what you said about such and such and so and so. Uh, and then I'd ask a question and, and uh, ask them to answer that for my next, in their next letter. But there's time delays. When there's time delays, there's, uh, spaces and thinking processes. Sometimes it allows for deeper thinking, and sometimes it just gets you off the trail. And so uh, it's a different way to do it. it. requires some different approaches, and I think some different understandings and skills. I don't think we do much I don't think we come close to doing enough with training of sponsors by mail or in meetings in prison. And maybe not as much as we should do with sponsorship in general. Uh, AA has a little pamphlet on how to sponsor, and I've kind of used that as my own guide. You know, and they mostly say, be flexible. You know, addicts are not all the same. And they have different needs. And uh, you have to give them what they need. In many ways, it's like treating children. We have to recognize that they don't have no matter how old they are, they don't have adult abilities. All of their human abilities have been diminished some, and maybe they've lost some completely and have absolutely no idea what's right and wrong, have absolutely no idea about making some choice in life. Or maybe it's just weakened that ability to make those choices and do those things. But but they're more like children than they are like adults. I was that way too. People lose their uh, their identity in prison. 
they lose their uh, uh, self-respect. Um, they lose their feeling of self-worth because they just chattel in the prison. Uh, you know, there's not much difference in the two questions. Uh, where should I put this piece of furniture and where should I put this prisoner? You know, they're treated like objects, like the objects of a sex addiction. You know, they're not people. This changes them. It changes them very uh, significantly so that when they get out, they are disabled in a way. They find it hard to make decisions. They make it. They find it hard to fill out forms for applications for jobs. They find it hard to find a place to live. They find why because they have had none of those kinds of activities to do in prison. They don't even get to choose what they want for lunch. You know, they don't get to choose a roommate, a bunkmate, a cellmate. Uh, I got a call one day, and they told me that I could not uh, write to prisoners and have meetings with them in the prison system. That there was a rule against that. So they told me that I could either write to prisoners in the Sponsored by Mail program, or I could continue to meet with them in the prison meetings, but I could not do both. If you went into our meeting and you asked, uh, how many think you might like someday to be uh, uh, serving uh, prisoners in the SA program in the state prison system? But you wouldn't get a single hand. There's no, it's just busy work. It's just hard work. It's, it's, you mean I'd have to go to the prisons every, every week or something? Uh, you know, I got a life to live. And especially retired guys would say that. So anyway, uh, I found out that I, that I could not find somebody to run the meetings in the prison. So that's what I decided I would do. And then I contacted the uh, uh, central office, talked to uh, Kay, and uh, told her that I was not going to be able to continue the sponsored by mail program. And she said, well, let me talk to some people here. So she talked to some people there. By that time, I was involved in the uh, the uh, SA uh, Correctional Facilities Committee. And... Uh, and uh, uh, I was a member of the committee for quite a while, and I was secretary of the committee for a while. And so that's how I knew Kay, and she knew me. But anyhow, she asked, uh, well, maybe we can find some way to continue that program. She knew it was doing some good because she was getting these guys all lined up. And uh, 
So then the next time I heard from her, she had talked with the board. And uh, <laughs> the board didn't want to be sponsoring something that they didn't have any real control over. And that's a, for good reason, I, I believe. So I was not, <laughs> I was not bent out of shape over that. But anyhow, she had worked out with the board that they would continue the program out of the central office if I would officially sign over the program to them because it was my, you know, I had created it and all that. But I never felt like it was mine anyway. That you know, I didn't possess it. I just, it was part of my service. I just developed it for the outfit. So of course I would. Why would I not? <laughs> the more people who can use it, the better. So she sent me some papers that the board had drawn up, and I signed that program over to them. And I have not sponsored anybody by mail since then. I've wanted to make that a kind of a clean break. I have never helped another person without helping myself. I started doing that in high school when I started tutoring other students in mathematics when it got hard for them. And I found that if I could explain it to somebody else <laughs> so that they would understand it, then I knew it a lot better than they did. <laughs> you know, then I had it. I couldn't lose it once I explained it to somebody else. I was doing myself a favor at the same time I was doing them a favor. If I'm uh, tempted by a woman walking down the street, scantily dressed or whatever, if I pray for her, the temptation goes away. <laughs> Just like the women I, I was really afraid of when I started sponsoring them. But it worked. And as I got to know them as people, not as objects, but as people, I could empathize with him just like I can with you or, or Glenn. You know, uh, when I sponsored them, it was the same thing. And people I talked to about, I'm careful where I even mention it. But but because most people, most sex addicts would say, you know, that can't work. You're getting into intimate detail about their temptations and their craving for sex and their behavior when they crave sex. Yeah, got into all of that in great detail and didn't hesitate to share my own. I was, I was amazed. I didn't think I could handle that. And I told them so before I ever agreed to be their sponsors. Uh, every one of them I told that too because they were all young, attractive women. You know, I was not very young myself. So as you get older, almost all the women are younger. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and they had no other choices for a sponsor. They couldn't sponsor each other. They didn't know what it was about. Didn't know, didn't know what the first step was yet. And, and uh, who else are they going to ask? You know, there's only men and women. So they asked me, and uh, after long discussion and uh, much prayer, I prayed hard over that one. 
And then when I told him I would do it, it was not, I will do it. <laughs> it was, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and you give it a try too. You see if you can make it work. Because we have to both work at this or it won't work at all. And then uh, gradually, you know, it was working. And I was amazed. You know, same line before I was halfway through. <laughs> uh, I was just amazed that I could have that kind of a conversation with a woman who I didn't know any better than I know you. I know that you're an addict. I know what that means. Maybe in some ways better than you do. But I don't know that. But but here I am with these women. And, and uh, I had never been able to talk to a woman about sex before without without having all kinds of problems. It was usually only as a come on. And this was not a come on, except for recovery. And uh, they knew that. And they wanted recovery. If they had just been kidding themselves about what they wanted, they really wanted an easier, softer way, or they really wanted to control and enjoy it, or, you know, whatever, then it would not have worked. And I would have noticed that, even if they had not been honest about it. And I would have told them, this is it. You're not ready yet for the program. You know, in the, in the, in the uh, fifth chapter of the AA Big Book, the title of the book is How It Works. <laughs> and the first word in the book, in that chapter, is rarely. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. They asked, uh, they asked Bill W. at a conference in the 1950s, if he could change something in the big book, what would he change? That one word, he would say never. Because if you thoroughly, thoroughly follow the path, you can't lose. The only losers are the quitters. When you quit following the path, you don't have much chance. And I don't know if there are any other programs that really work for addiction and recovery. But nothing ever worked for me, and I tried almost everything I could think of or that came to my attention or whatever, you know. And uh, so I say, I know one way that works, and that's the only way I'm going to think about it until somebody proves there's another way or maybe an easier, softer way or you know what all that crap is. But uh, I think in the long run, the 12-step program is the easiest, softest way. Mm -hmm. You know, we may not think the steps are so easy when we're going through them because we're being forced to change our whole way of thinking about life and living. And that's not easy. It's hard. Hard for all of us. You've got to be ready for recovery or there's no point for anybody to waste time on you. You've got to want recovery more than anything else in your life. That's what I keep telling people I sponsor. If there's anything else in life that you want more than sobriety and recovery, 
You're in danger. <laughs> you know? Don't tell me you couldn't come to the meeting because of a birthday party. Because <laughs> if you don't get sober and recover, there won't be any more birthdays. <laughs> you know, there won't be any more birthdays. When I came back to my wife, one of the issues that we talked about was our priorities. And I told her that my priority in life had to be my sobriety and recovery. I said, and she didn't say anything, and I said, and it has to be more important than our marriage. And all she said at first was, oh. <laughs> and then I said, now I've, I've not hesitated to tell you that because you know from your own experience that if I'm not sober, we don't have a marriage anyway. And she said, oh, yeah. <laughs> And she's been with that concept ever since. She got that one. But it's really hard to pass these concepts on to a person who's, who's never suffered through addiction, whether they're in grad school or studying addiction or whether they're in the family of addicts. When I sponsor guys, I have some questions about quality of sobriety. I tell them <clears throat> that I've been sober a long time, but the quality of my sobriety might be, might be nowhere as good as somebody who's fairly new in the program. And, uh, you know, don't see what you can do to live as close as possible to the brink of destruction. That's not quality sobriety. You, know? you want to when we talk about making progress, not perfection, you know. Am I getting farther from the brink or closer to the brink? And it's very subjective. That's why we don't give, give uh, ma uh, medallions for the quality of sobriety. We, we can't even measure our own. And uh, we couldn't understand anybody else's probably. The length of sobriety is very clear cut, black and white. Some guys try to make it gray, but but that's not a very healthy thing to do. But if it's just been uh, lackadaisical about sponsorship, then I will say, you know, the sponsorship. <laughs> It's my responsibility to do certain things. If you call me, I'll answer the phone. If you need me for something, I'll be there. If you have questions, I'll get the best answer I can for you. And on and on I go with that. And then I always say, but your recovery is your responsibility. I cannot make you sober. I will not make a commitment to make you sober. Because you shouldn't believe it even if I try to do that. But anytime you want help, you call me. And then I tell them if it's been a while and it's not a good excuse, I'll say it's entirely in your hands now. The ball's in your court. If you want help, you have to call me. I will not call you again. But and that's because I can't do you any good if you're not interested enough to call me. I never wanted to waste my time on somebody who wasn't ready for recovery because they were the ones who came in and 
and uh, argued with the program. They were the ones who came in and said, well, yeah, some guys are that bad, but not me. Well, if you're not ready for it, you're not ready for it. It doesn't matter whether you're better than somebody else or worse than somebody else. Are you as bad as you're willing to be? I think that too often, guys who attend meetings on a fairly regular basis don't think any deeper than just reading the words in the meetings. And uh, some of the best discussions I've had in discussion meetings have been, uh, look at the third sentence in this reading and that we read at every meeting. What does that what does that sentence really mean to you in your life? And I always felt that I could learn something from a different meeting. And what the same thing happened when we would have a visitor at our place toward the end of the meeting, I would say, Hey, you're from where? Uh, in your regular meetings, do you do any things that you really like that are different from anything we've done here? And they would sometimes open up and say, oh, yeah, we talked about this, or we always do this at the end of the meeting, or we always do that. If a guy came in and he was a homosexual, I would try to find a way to be his sponsor so that I could give him some reasonable approach to you know, you can't you can't tell somebody to leave his partner. He'll leave the program first. You know, what do I say? Go somewhere else where I don't think you can get as much help as we can give you here? You know, I couldn't do that. So so I would tell them the rule I like to follow is don't change Anything about a relationship. Don't get a divorce. Don't get married. You know, don't, don't, don't. Uh, during the first year of your sobriety, just wait till you've taken care of yourself first. Then maybe you can deal with a relationship. But until then, you're going to screw it up. Anyway, you won't have anything to show for it <laughs> at the end of that year. Or you may have some second thoughts about your homosexuality. Because it's stronger for some people than it is for others, you know. Well, I don't want them to be struggling with that while they're trying to get sober. That's enough to have to do. So, and besides that, sometimes with a little more care, I would tell them that if you're an addict and you're married even, sobriety is going to change you. It may change you in a way that your spouse doesn't like or that makes you harder to get along with. And you don't, you don't know. So don't make any changes for that first year. Even if you're fighting with your wife now, don't walk out. Don't do anything about it. Stick with it. And by extension, if you're in a homosexual relationship, don't change it. Don't change it. Stay in it for that first year and then make an evaluation. And so I would give them that advice and uh, and I'll be praying for you, you know. 
and it was honest, it was sincere, and and they knew I was sincere. So I think that we don't emphasize step 12 enough. I think we emphasize the steps through making amends. But I think we get to steps 10, 11, and 12. You know, it's something we'll never finish anyway. So uh, I think we don't emphasize those steps enough. I try with the guys that I sponsor. Try to say now, develop some life habits as you work these three steps. And build them into your life. Other virtues that had nothing to do directly with my character defects that I would like to emphasize and develop more in my life. How how would I like to be as a human being? And uh, uh, I found that I could take inventory on that kind of stuff in step 10. I could make that a habit. Um, What opportunities did I miss today to develop a certain virtue? And, And that way I could continue to grow. When am I working the steps? <laughs> if I'm breathing, I'm working the steps. <laughs> you know, that's the way my life ought to be today. I am uh, grateful for everything. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but those were opportunities for, my, for me to learn and grow. I live in gratitude the same way a fish lives in the water. <laughs> I'm here to help other people to grow and develop and become all they can become. And that'll help me become all I can become in the process. And that's what we're here for. I think service itself is not emphasized as much as it should be. It's not just something that would be good to do when you finish the other steps, you know, and you don't have anything else to do. It's part of your program. And and for me, it's been a critical part. It's at the very center of my program. Uh, my commitment is living a life of service. And I keep looking for ways to serve. 